This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, January the 17th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Dr. Larissa Moniz from Fighting Blindness Canada will share some of their latest research and upcoming events. Lawrence Gunther discusses heat pumps as a source for clean hating technology. And Elizabeth Moeller will explore and explain some of the benefits of OpenAI's ChatGPT. You'll also get the weekly news quiz, and Nelson Rago stops by in the second hour of the show. But let's begin with the top story of the day, and it's all about the economy today. Stats Canada is out with the December inflation data this morning. The year-over-year number, still high at 6.3%, but that still represents a significant slowing month-over-month. It's a drop of 0.5% from November. Food prices remain a major concern, 11% increase year-over-year on those food prices. And that number just dropped a couple of minutes ago. We'll get some analysis as the day moves along, and I'll share that with you tomorrow. But there's more economic news for you to consume. The Bank of Canada has released data from a survey about the state of the economy. Najud Amaliz shares some insights. The central bank released its fourth quarter business outlook and consumer expectations surveys today, giving some insight into how inflation and interest rates are affecting Canadian consumers and businesses. More businesses are reporting demand and credit as pressing concerns while consumers are cutting back on spending amid rising prices. Despite concerns about weakening demand, almost half of businesses said they're planning to add employees or to fill vacant positions over the next 12 months. The surveys also showed both businesses and consumers expect inflation to remain elevated in the short term, but expect it to ease in five years to close to the central bank's target of 2%. Nijuda Melis, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. And more economic survey data for you. Bankruptcy firm MNP's latest report suggests Canadians are worried about debt. Don Kelly files this report. MMP says its quarterly consumer debt index fell 15 points since its last survey to an all-time low of 77 points, which indicates higher anxiety about debt. Online interviews done last month suggest the number of Canadians concerned about their debt rose 7 percentage points to 47%, which is a record high. 64% of respondents say as interest rates rise, they're more concerned about their ability to pay their debts. 59% say if interest rates go up much more, they're going to be in financial trouble. Don Kelly, the Canadian Press. So you're smart. You're on, you understand. You watch and listen to this show almost every day. At least I hope you do. And I'm sure you can understand the difference between the last two reports that I played for you, which was survey data, expectation data, feeling data, rather than the objective number that I gave you in regards to Stats Canada's inflation number. It's the same thing when I share job numbers with you. There's a difference between expectation and objective numbers. Job growth continues to be strong in Canada. Inflation is going down in Canada. And yet you're dealing with things like expectations on surveys because people talk about recession, 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 recession. Then you're going to be influencing the way people feel about these things. Certainly when you're talking about the way Canadians are feeling about debt, as interest rates continue to go up from the Bank of Canada, certainly if you're carrying debt, you're going to be more concerned about debt. But you're smart. You've connected these dots. You don't need me to do that for you. And yet, sometimes I feel compelled to do so anyway. So you think that I'm smart. (laughs) While we're talking about the economy, the World Economic Forum is back with its first in-person winter meeting since 2020. Charles de Ledesma offers up this primer. Leaders are seeking to bridge political divisions in a divided world, buttress a hobbling economy and address concerns about climate change, among many other things. Nearly 600 CEOs and more than 50 heads of state or government are expected, but it's never clear how much concrete action emerges from the elite event. Missing are leaders like President Joe Biden, Chinese President Xi Jinping, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and French President Emmanuel Macron. 
I'm Charles Tulletesma. Coming back to Canada, there were lots of healthcare stories yesterday for you in the morning, but there was one announcement that we were waiting on, and here it is out of Ontario. Ontario expanding is expanding the private delivery of public health care by funding procedures like cataract surgeries, MRI, and CT scans. Health Minister Sylvia Jones says the plan should eliminate some pandemic backlogs of procedures by March. We need to be bold, innovative, and creative. We need to build on the spirit of collaboration on display across the healthcare sector. We need to have the courage to look to other provinces and countries and borrow the best of what the world is already doing. Premier Doug Ford offered up some rationale on the new privatization policy. The way I can describe it, you know, you have a dam, you have a log jam. Are you going to just keep pouring the water uh, up against the logs? Or are you going to reroute some of the water and take the pressure off, off the dam? Uh, you see what happens when the dam has too much water, it breaks. The private procedures will continue to be paid for by the Ontario Health Insurance Plan. And finally, some federal politics for you at a three-day retreat in Ottawa this week. New Democrat MPs are expected to discuss getting more wins out of their confidence and supply agreement with the federal Liberals. NDP caucus chair Jenny Kwan says that includes getting a pharmacare bill introduced. We know, uh, for example, uh, the pharmacare uh, piece uh, it will require legislation. That is part of the CAFA agreement. Uh, and so, you know, so legislation will certainly uh, come forward. The NDP caucus retreat starts tomorrow and the House of Commons resumes on January the 30th. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in Saskatchewan yesterday touring minerals facilities. Mining companies with projects in the north say more federal support is needed following the release of Canada's critical minerals strategy. Robin Gold is the president of the Fortune Minerals Limited, which owns the proposed NICO mine in the Northwest Territories. We've been studying this for years and we haven't seen any substantive money flowing through to projects at this time. That would be my overall view of, of the critical mental strategy. All kinds of great statements about support, but haven't seen any yet. The strategy is backed by $3.8 billion in the 2022 budget. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. On Monday, you were asked, employee, employers are using tracking software to monitor employees working remotely. How comfortable are you with that practice? 27% of you said very, 27% of you said somewhat, and 46% of you said not at all. Had a bit of difference of opinion coming your way on Facebook. Brett writes in somewhat, but here's the thing. Who cares where I'm working from as long as I get my work done? If I want to work from the moon, let me be. Maria writes in, yes, since we are paid, then they should have the right to know if we're doing the work or not. Dishonesty creates doubt. Thank you to everybody who takes that extra time to write in with expanded thoughts on the poll. And I have a sneaking suspicion that today's may garner a little bit of response out there in the social media world. I played those clips from the Ontario government announcing the privatization of certain procedures still being paid for with public money. So the question at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, provinces are increasingly privatizing the delivery of health services. How do you feel about that? Good, bad, or don't care? It's hard to say that you feel necessarily good about these things. Certainly, if it takes some pressure in the short term off the system, the public system, and reduces backlogs, that is a good thing. It's a good outcome. But is the practice a good practice? Is this becoming a systemic alternative to funding the public system? And I'm not so naive as to understand that we don't already have a somewhat two-tiered system that exists in this country across many different provinces. But... It's hard to look at this and say, I feel good about privatizing Canada's public health care, but I do feel good about the idea of getting rid of some of these backlogs. So I'm kind of caught in the middle. Alex Smythe, where do you land? Yeah, Dave, I, I'm kind of in a similar boat to you. I, I don't know whether I would say bad or don't care. Like, I understand the need to ease off the backlog. I think, for me, what I'm more concerned about what's going to be the next step is this just a temporary measure is this 
something that is going to be in place for a long time? And if so, is it going to continue to be funded by the provincial government? I think the day that you see this continue and then all of a sudden there's an announcement, well, we are no longer covering uh, these types of procedures uh, through the Ontario government, which would you know, be something that the Conservative government would do more so than a Liberal or NDP or, or a Green Party government, you then, that's where I would be, no, this is wrong. One of the staples, one of the jewels of our uh, system in our country is our funded healthcare system, especially when you compare us to uh, countries like the U.S., where we see the impacts and the effects of not having government-funded and supported healthcare, where it is free access to healthcare. And yeah. so I, I want to avoid that at all costs. I understand, and you mentioned it, so we, we kind of do have that two-tiered system. Yeah, like, or, 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 Alex, or, or Alex, yep. even, even the sense that like there are certain services that are already delivered privately. For example, if yes. you want to go get your blood tested, you go to a private clinic to do that, and the government pays for it. You don't get money out of your pocket for those blood tests. Same thing mm -hmm. for an ultrasound. I had a couple ultrasounds on a couple injuries a couple of years ago. You go to a private clinic that is funded publicly. So it's not so it's not something that is necessarily foreign or brand new to our right. system, but it's when you start increasingly offering more and more procedures down these down these lines. Well, and and the thing is too it's like is this just going to be the response as you mentioned to not actually putting more money into the healthcare system and supporting the government uh, structures within the healthcare systems. Like, we, we know we need to increase the number of nurses, doctors, resources that we have in our, our public sector. Well, you know, this, this may be a Band-Aid solution for the backlog, but this can't be the long-term solution to, oh, we'll just keep, you know, funding the, the private sector because that's not what our system should be set up for. But that said, you know, for myself, I had a cataract surgery back in 2022. And I went to a, a private um, uh, a private uh, facility for it. Uh, I had the option to go with the government-funded option for the type of lens. I chose to pay more to get a, a, a better lens, one that was more specifically suited for my vision and my types of needs. But the option was there that I could go with the government-funded one. My fear is always that that is going to, if we continue down this path, may get stripped away, that that no longer is an option, that there is no longer this minimal standard of care and access for people who need it without having to fear that they have to pay for everything. Mm -hmm. Alex, thank you for your thoughts on that one. I know you have opinions out there in the social media space. At Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter, that's where you vote. But don't forget, you can also reach out to the show via email, feedback at ami.ca feedback at ami.ca or give a phone call 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Alex Smythe is still there. He has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. We'll start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where there's more wet weather in the forecast with up to five millimeters of rain set to fall today. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 8 degrees. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, similar conditions. It's rain expected throughout the day with 4 millimeters set to fall. The high is also 8 degrees. In Montreal, Quebec, it's a mix of sunny clouds today with crowds, clouds increasing as the day goes on. The high is minus 4, but with that wind chill, it's feeling like minus 15. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's uh, similar conditions, a mix of sun and clouds with the clouds increasing as the day goes on. The high is minus 6 and feeling like minus 19. Here in Toronto, Ontario, rain off and on today with a chance of freezing rain in the morning, so be careful out there if you're on the roads. The high is 4 degrees. Over to Thunder Bay, Ontario, there's light snow this morning, then a chance of more in the afternoon with up to 2 centimeters set to fall. There is also a chance of freezing rain in today, and the high is minus one. Over to Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of light snow or possibly freezing rain. The high is minus 10 and feeling like minus 18 with that wind chill. To Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, similar conditions. It's mainly cloudy with a chance of light snow or freezing rain. 
The high is minus 7, and that wind chill is minus 15. To Calgary, Alberta. It's quite a lovely day. It's mainly sunny, a high of plus 1, and a wind chill of minus 13. Up in Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of light snow or freezing rain, and they'll be clearing up this afternoon. There is a fog advisory in effect as there is heavy fog in the area this morning. The high is minus 4, feeling like minus 10. Over to Yellowknife Northwest Territories, there's snow off and on today, with up to 4 centimeters set to fall. The high is minus 12, and it's feeling like minus 23 with that wind chill. Now to Vancouver, BC. It is cloudy with a chance of rain and a high of 8 degrees. And finally in Victoria, BC, it's mainly cloudy and there is rain expected as the day goes on. The high there is also 8 degrees. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the show, but coming up next, Dr. Larissa Moniz from Fighting Blindness Canada shares some of their latest research and upcoming events. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Fighting Blindness has a big year ahead of them. There's events, initiatives, and of course, lots of vision research. Here in studio to give you an update is Dr. Larissa Moniz. Dr. Moniz is the FBC's Director of Research and Mission. Hey, Dr. Moniz, thank you for making time to be with us today. We're grateful. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be in studio. So before we look ahead, let's look back on 2022. In terms of research, what were some of the funding projects that FPC took on? So in 2022, Fighting Blindness Canada, we were really proud to um, invest $2.6 million in research. That was over 35 different projects. And the projects really range across the sort of gamut of eye diseases. So we fund research to understand why vision loss occurs but also to try to find treatments or even potentially cures for different types of blinding eye diseases. So that includes genetic eye diseases, inherited retinal diseases like retinase pigmentosa, um, age-related eye diseases, age-related macular degeneration, um, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, and a little bit of everything in between. We had a really interesting project looking at um, bacterial infection that can be caused by cataracts, not cataracts, sorry, contacts. I had cataracts by mind after listening to your last <laughs> after session. segment one, yeah. Um, yeah, and so we sort of are trying to um, just try to understand much more about why these eye diseases occur and support Canadian researchers. There's such a broad range of research mm -hmm. going on across the country, and they're in so many different stages. But Eye on the Cure occurred in November, and that was an event for competitors, uh, competition for researchers to put their projects forward. Who were some of the winners? So we had um, three different teams. So this was like a really unconventional um, award show for us, or competition, where we asked researchers to um, put forward some innovative ideas, like always, but it was really about expressing and explaining what their research was to the general public. Mm -hmm. So a little bit like a dragon's den, where they came on, they pitched their research to the judges, they pitched it to the general public. And we had three wonderful teams from across the country. Um, the, the team that ended up winning was from the University of Victoria, and they were studying Stargardt's disease, which is an inherited eye disease. And they were trying to look at a relationship between Stargardt's disease and inflammation. We also had um, a team from Calgary who was looking at a new device to reduce pressure in glaucoma, and then a team that was a joint team from Toronto and Calgary who was looking at um, an eye disease called retinopathy of prematurity that Im impacts premature babies. How important is that continuity created by FBC, where you have new projects receiving funding, people pitching their work, but also you're having projects in their late stages, right? They're just looking for approvals from Health Canada for some of the research done by FBC. Yep, so we really want to fund research across the spectrum. So from discovery science, which is so important, so key to get that initial understanding, but um, research, the point of research is to ultimately have impact on patients or to have impact on individuals living with eye diseases. Um, so we really are trying to support research discovery stage, translational stage, and even sometimes, you're right, at the clinical stage. 
The clinical stage is very, very expensive, and that is often heavily supported by pharm pharma companies or industry. So we tend to support a little bit earlier in, in the pathway. But it makes us really proud when we see some of our researchers, some of our researchers who are now um, participating in clinical trials, who are delivering some of these new treatments. What kind of opportunities are going to exist in 2023 for people to continue pitching some of their fresh research, their new research? Yeah, we're really excited to keep that momentum going. So 2.6 million in 2022 was um, a fantastic sort of milestone for us. And we want to make sure that we continue to fund this innovative research. So we have a number of competitions. One of the first, which is um, really exciting to me, is called our Transformative Research Awards. They are asking researchers to put forward really big and bold ideas, and the grants are for $1.25 million each. So really, really large amounts of money. So we're hoping with that investment, they can really make a huge impact on retinal degeneration and really move the field forward. So we're just going through the review process now. So I'm really looking forward to maybe coming back on and telling mm -hmm. you more about the actual projects. Oh, we're always appreciative to hear about the projects as they're coming to fruition. Yeah. Now, it's not just the research that FBC is dedicated to. There's also a lot of fun, right? There's a lot of serious, mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of fun, and there's a lot of events that the public can get involved with, including Last Call, which is going to be mm -hmm. taking place in the spring in Toronto. What happens at that event? Yes, I think fun's the right word. So this is a comedy fundraiser. It's a... Uh, the date is to be announced. It's going to be in April or May, so sort of stay tuned for that. But it's a, basically a casual comedy event. So come out with your friends, um, hear some great stand-up comics, have a cocktail, um, <laughs> have some little snack food, hopefully have a lot of laughs. Um, tickets are $200, and it's um, to raise money for vision research. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, there's a lot of great fundraising opportunities, including one that I've been involved with a couple of times back when I lived in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. I ended up emceeing uh, Cycle for Sight a couple of different oh, times, amazing. which I really enjoyed. So those events are going to be rolling out again across the country this year. What's on deck for Cycle for Sight? Yep, so Cycle for Sight this year is our 15th anniversary. And wow. also, thank you wow. for participating before. Um, so we were virtual for a few years. We came back in person last year. And this year, we're doing a mixture of in-person and virtual. So you can join an in-person ride in Toronto or in BC, or just join us and move. So get on your bike if you want to, or go for a walk, do some yoga, whatever is accessible to you, whatever makes you happy. We want you to move to help us move research forward. That was one of the blessings of the pandemic, that especially for something like a marathon or a walkathon or a cycle or a cyclethon, that there was an opportunity to actually participate in that without necessarily hopping an Uber all the way out to Carp, Ontario on a Sunday morning, which uh, which I think I appreciated. <laughs> Absolutely, I was going to say because not only getting there can be a problem, but not everybody is a professional <laughs> um, <laughs> like road racer, right? So. This is a way to really just, I, I haven't actually um, ridden in these rides, but I've done walks. I have sort of got together with a group of people and done a little casual bike ride around my neighborhood. Yeah, a little bit more, um, more my, my speed. I'm, I'm already expecting the phone call from one of the Ottawa organizers to say, is this the year that I'm getting you on the back of my tandem bike to do this? And I keep saying, oh, maybe when I get back in shape. And, uh, and that, is, that is sort of a project on the fly. Uh, Dr. Muniz, where should people go if they want to keep up to date with not just the events that are happening, but the research that's happening from FBC? So I think there's a couple of ways. The best way is to join our monthly e-newsletter. So if you go onto our website, our website is fightingblindness.ca. Um, we get a monthly e-news which gives you information about the research, the impact that um, donors' money is having, but also all of these wonderful events, and also opportunities to volunteer. So we, it really is about community, and we couldn't do this without our community. We couldn't put on these events. We couldn't fund this great research. So if anybody is interested in meeting some new people, um, gaining some new skills, maybe getting some volunteer hours. Um, this is a wonderful way to do it through our oh, events. Volunteer hours, I like that. That's a good idea. Yeah. There's a couple of kids who can't finish their high school exactly. degree <laughs> until they get those in. <laughs> hey, Dr. Muniz, I'm so grateful that you were able to join us this morning. It's a, a rainy, icy, sleety morning in Toronto. So we appreciate you braving the elements to come join us in studio. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. That is Dr. Larissa Moniz, FBC's Director of Research and Mission. Coming up next, Lawrence Gunther stops by. He will discuss the merits of heat pumps as a clean heating technology. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes.
Canada's main stock index crept a little higher yesterday on a slow trading day as U.S. markets were closed for the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday. Toronto's TSX index added 30 points to close at 20,390. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 316 points. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.56 cents U.S. Asian shares are mixed after China reported its economy expanded at a 3% pace last year, less than half half the rate of 2021. Official data today showed China's economic growth was under pressure from antivirus controls and a real estate slump, but is gradually reviving after restrictions were lifted. Statistics Canada releases its inflation report for December this morning. The federal agency's Consumer Price Index report will provide insight on how quickly prices rose last month as Canada continues to struggle with decades-high inflation. Our annual inflation rate in November was 6.8%. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Heat pump technology, it's making a comeback. And it has some benefits for the environment. Here to tell you more is Lawrence Gunther. Lawrence is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. You can find that show Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio and on your favorite podcasting platform. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. How are you? I'm doing great, Dave. Lawrence, let's start with the history of heat pumps. What is the history? These things came out back uh, around the same time as the oil crisis in 1979, you know, when the uh, Saudi Arabians and all the other Arab countries closed down uh, delivery or reduced delivery significantly. And um, and we were looking for alternatives. Now, th- these this was an alternative. It was an electric alternative, but it used um, the ground temperature deep underground to exchange hot for cold, cold for hot. But it was an expensive system. You had to drill a hole way down into the ground, and then you had to run a conduit from a pump in your house to to the to into the ground, where the extraction or or you know, you would pump your hot air in there and let it cool, or you would pump your, it heated and cooled. But just to set the whole thing up was quite expensive. And then what we learned, Dave, and this was a sort of a bit of a downer, is that in the deep cold winter months, the deep cold months, these things never worked that well. Mm-hmm. So you still had to have some sort of supplemental heat source, like a baseboard heaters or a, a fireplace, a wood stove, something of that nature. So just the cost and the fact that they never worked perfectly in the winter, people turned off them pretty quickly. <laughs> Lawrence, it almost feels uh, when we're talking about the energy crisis of the 1970s, it feels perhaps like we're back there now uh, 40 years later. Mm-hmm. So what's changed to make heat pumps? It maybe popular again is the wrong way to phrase that, but in a growing popularity. Well, everything electric, right? That's that seems to be the the tone these days. Everything electric. We're you know we're going to electric lawnmowers and even snow blowers now. I was uh, listening to someone who was talking about their electric snowblower the other day. Um, you know, electric cars certainly are coming up strong. And you and I talked not so long ago, Dave, about municipalities and regions and provinces that are sort of banning uh, new construction with with fossil fueled uh, powered heating systems, mm-hmm. you know, water mm-hmm. heating stoves, furnaces for heating your homes, dryers, things like that. You know, I think Vancouver, Quebec, the government of Quebec, they've all sort of started to introduce various bans on, uh, to f- you know, phase out fossil fuels so now all of a sudden electric sources of of cooking heating and things like that are are growing in popularity again this is happening at the same time um that they're you know they're putting more money into reinventing the heat pump giving it another think over and and seeing if they can deal with that winter issue and uh, coming up with some other novel ideas so yeah it's it's um is it going to be a, a more cost-effective solution, or is this all about climate change and reducing our CO2 emissions, reducing our footprint on this earth? So along those lines, what is changing to overcome a few of those barriers that we saw when they first were introduced, they first became popular, whether it be the costly installation or whether it be the actual inefficiency of the technology? Mm. Both they're working on both. So the 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 heat pump that uh, used ground energy that drilled holes in the ground, there those companies that manufacture those are being incentivized to 
make those systems more efficient to work better. So now they can work with a, a body of water. So if you're located near a body of water, you can use that to cool your home or heat your home. Uh, same with underground, you can drill a hole again, still go way down into the earth's, you know, below the crust down there, below the frost level and, and do it that way. Now, they also have now an air cool system. So this is more in temperate climates. Uh, it'll cool your home in the summer and warm your home in the winter. Not extremely well, but they do it well enough when the climate isn't it's super extreme. And, and these are a lot cheaper. Mm. They do require more maintenance. So, uh, so say an air system would cost you between five and $10,000 to install. Uh, a, a proper heat pump system that goes into the ground with a well you're looking at an installation cost of about $30,000 to set that up. So there's still, you know, some uh, sizable change going into that. It, it's, um, but yeah, again, you know, it's really tapping into that whole movement to go electric. Yeah, it's, it's part of the bigger picture. And so oftentimes, as you and I have these conversations, there's no silver bullet, right? There's no one mm -hmm. single thing that's going to make this better. Maybe it's a combination of a heat pump and a solar panel and a little windmill, right? Like there's all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. people can be doing to sort of change the way they're consuming energy and spending energy and generating energy in their home. So Lawrence, you've, 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 tapped, you've tiptoed around this a couple times here. What role could the government play in terms of getting people off natural gas or other forms of fossil fuels when it comes to furnaces or <laughs> increasingly importantly, their AC units? Well, for sure. You know, it wasn't that long ago that we were all heating our homes with uh, with uh, oil, furnace oil. Mm -hmm. It's the same stuff they burn in jet air, airlines, right? It's 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 dirty, it's uh, cheap, and it was also the stuff that was embargoed uh, in the 1970s. So there was a big push to get off uh, furnace oil and, and switch to natural gas. You know, the energy companies also realized that they were just throwing natural gas away. They, it was getting in the way of, of, of pumping the oil out of the ground. They had to burn off the natural gas. So you had these giant flares happening across the prairies all the time to mm -hmm. burn off natural mm -hmm. gas. Now they found a way to sell it to us. They had to just pump it into our houses, pipe it into our houses. So government set up incentive programs for us to switch from oil to natural gas in our homes for, for water heating, for cooking, for heating our homes. Um, and, and all of a sudden, this free resource, this you know useless resource, had a value. So we got it cheap, and we've been using it cheaply. This is the problem. We're still sort of uh, like this cheap natural gas. It's cheap, but we think yeah, it's... Uh, we like it's, it. We like cheap energy, Lawrence. <laughs> I know. And we think it's good for the planet. It has the word natural in it, right? So <laughs> Is that like natural corn fr uh, corn fructose syrup in our food? <laughs> natural flavored potato chips, you know? <laughs> it's, it's all of that. It, 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 clever marketing, there's no doubt about it. But, you know, I think people are just starting to get their head wrapped around the idea that natural gas is just another fossil fuel. And um, we need to stop using and burning fossil fuels. So, I, people are grasping that getting, uh, if we had some incentives, or we're getting incentives to buy electric cars, we're getting incentives to, you know, insulate our homes better and things Ener like energy, that. Energy efficient appliances, we're getting incentives for that too. That too. So why not have an incentive to, to go and switch over to these uh, uh, more electric based heating systems that are, that are truly efficient? I think that's going to come for sure. It's just all going to happen around the same time though that we're, you know we're starting to see a lot more people like i said using electric uh, appliances uh, electric uh, yard tools and electric vehicles dave like the demand on the electrical system is going to be growing pretty yeah. ex uh, exponentially yeah. and and are we ready for that that's the big question right but can you build infrastructure at the same time as need grows if if you're going to, if you're going to save via legislation you must electrify your economy or electrify your energy grid then are you producing electricity? What are you doing to do so? Yeah, you can't have one without the other. Lawrence, maybe this is a question more for a construction guy, uh, but I'm curious around retrofitting. Let's say somebody does not have a heat pump in their house already. Can you install one into an old build? Sure you can. You just need to find a place to drill the hole, right? Like where are you going to get that bill, you know, that drill rig into your property and, and, and 
drill a hole in your backyard? Will you get the rig into your backyard? It's going to be on the front yard. You know, what are all the regulations? But people are definitely getting these done in the suburbs. You also now see communities that depend on one heat pump source. So you'll have a row of townhouses and one heat pump system all pulling out of that same hole. So they're sharing the cost of that. So that's working out really well. If you do it at the new build stage or the major renovation stage, it's totally doable. You know, it, will it work for apartment buildings and office towers and things like that? But good questions. I think this is all emerging technology. And we do have some tremendous sources of heat energy underground in, in different parts of the uh, country that we can tap into as well. So there's all sorts of uh, research being done on this. I think I think what stopped this for a long time was the fossil fuel industry industry that really wanted to push oil and gas and really incentivized us to use that and almost put push these types of technologies onto the uh, onto the shelf right but now they're coming back off the shelf and maybe they're going to have a better chance of, of making it to uh to actual fruition you know like solar and wind right i mean how long have we known about oh solar gosh, and wind yeah. and how come we never used it but, <laughs> but now we now it's the cheapest way to produce energy in north america solar yeah. and wind renewable right like the, when they say mm-hmm. it's renewable it, it's it's literally renewable the sun's going to shine on us every day until that star explodes and then we're all dead anyway so that's all good <laughs> um, exactly <laughs> not to be too nihilistic about these things. Uh, Lawrence, one of the great pleasures that I have on a Monday morning is when I come into the office, it's right about the time the replay of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther hits on oh. on AMI-audio. So at about 7 a.m. Eastern time on Mondays as part of like the wheel repeating cycle. And I end up listening to almost the entire show and I really enjoy it. It's a great way to start my week. What's coming up on the next episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther? All right, no pressure, eh, David? No pressure, no pressure at all. No, no, no pressure, none in the least. <laughs> I can I have to stop fooling around and take this a little more seriously, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but I we are having so much fun. Lily and I have been at this now since uh September of 2020. It was our COVID project and it's it's rolling on and you know, we're we're getting more crafty with it. But this this coming episode it's a it's going to be a mix, Dave. We're going to talk uh to uh, some friends at Birds Canada. They were at the uh COP15 biodiversity conference mm. in montreal for two weeks and uh, so we're going to have an inside perspective on that and what it means for birds in canada uh lily and i visit the uh, rainforest exhibit at the montreal biodome so uh, oh we're getting... yes <laughs> i love that place <laughs> and ed i've got my merlin bird app out so i'm going to teach people how to use the merlin bird identity app you can take a picture of a bird yeah good luck to us taking a picture of a bird right (laughs) (laughs) thankfully it also has a sound identifier so if you hold really still and you're quiet and you hit the microphone you can record the uh the bird sound and then have have that as a recording and that'll match that against other recordings on the system and tell you what the bird is lawrence you're pretty good at sitting still that's that's a fisherman's traits you're not so great at staying quiet i've spent time with you in your social <laughs> that's life the other fisherman traits. <laughs> hey lawrence all the best to you have a great day i can't wait to hear about your biodome feature uh used to be a place where i would take women on dates when i was in montreal right on oh it's a great it's... place for a first date because there was always something to talk about and if uh the date went well you could go for ice cream yeah, they had some good food there too, and the yeah. ice cream truck out yeah, front. They had yeah, the ice cream truck hey, out front. I'm telling you, man, it was the place to go. And I'm so glad after the renovation, it's reopened again and uh, back open to the public. That's good stuff. Lawrence, thank you for this. Have a great day. You too, Dave. That's Lawrence Gunther, the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. You can find that show Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio, or you can catch the repeat like I do Monday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio, or you can listen on demand whenever you like on your favorite podcasting platform. Just search for Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. And you can follow Lawrence on Twitter, at Lawrence Gunther, at Lawrence Gunther. Gunther is spelled G-U-N-T-H-E-R. Coming up next, Elizabeth Moeller discusses some of the benefits of OpenAI's ChatGPT chatbot. But first, there are alternatives to mounting your TV. Mike Dubusky tells you more in Tech Trends.
Displace is a new company working on a lightweight TV that when you press it against a flat surface can vacuum suction itself to the wall. Digital Trends' Caleb Dennison says it's meant to be portable, so no wires. Completely wireless. Um, with hot swappable battery packs. That means you can swap out a dead battery and replace it with a fresh one while the TV is still running. Displace says each of the four battery packs will give you up to six hours of power. So the idea is you could go for an entire 24 hours of TV watching without ever having to plug anything in. Shows, movies, and games stream from a separate transmitter box. The screen itself is a 55-inch 4K OLED unit sourced from LG. No remote either. Controlling this TV is done with your voice or with hand gestures. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. OpenAI's ChatGPT chatbot is garnering quite a bit of buzz in the tech world. Toronto community reporter Elizabeth Moeller has been playing around with it and wants to share her experience with the platform. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth. How are you? Good morning on this cloudy Tuesday morning, Dave. <laughs> it is a uh, pretty miserable morning here in uh, southern Ontario. That's okay, though. We survive. We live. We move forward. Elizabeth, how do you find yourself using ChatGPT? Yeah, so ChatGPT, just to do a really quick recap, is a, a bot. It came out live on the scene in uh, November of 2022. And it is an AI algorithm that allows an individual to put in bits of text and it will generate prose, it will generate uh, computer code, song lyrics poetry, even a Shakespeare sonnet or two. Mm -hmm. So really the idea, and this is this is a new trend, but at the same time, not so new when we really think about how kind of AI has been evolving and, and really the predictive text piece. But there's also Lenza, which is um, an image generator and Dali too, where you can actually put in text and it will pop out an image for you. Um, but really how I've been using it in a couple of ways. So Honestly, it's really great for form letters. So if I wanted to to send a thank you letter to Dave for a great community report, I might log <laughs> on to chat.openai and type in send a thank you letter to Dave Brown, thanking him for an excellent community report on Tuesday, January the 17th. And it would generate quite a formal sounding, but a nice sounding form letter. So I've found when I've used it, I've had to sort of Elizabeth it up a bit. Some of my friends have said, well, it doesn't sound like you. It sounds very formal. So I've had to sort of Elizabeth it up a bit, but you can also use it for generating emails, uh, longer prose. I have actually tried to just dump in, um, you know, the first few points of my, my thesis paragraph and see what it comes up with. The thing is it generates prose. It doesn't do a great job of connecting those ideas, that higher level thinking. So in my case, it, it didn't really understand the methodology that I was using in my dissertation. So the paragraph was a bit disjointed. So what we're seeing is a lot of people starting to use this and we're having questions around intellectual property, ideas, academic integrity has been a huge one on the table. But in the same breath, I'm thinking about the disability community and how this might help people who have the ideas, but maybe just because of a learning difference, need some help to sort of just get their thoughts in order. Yeah, you said a lot there, Elizabeth. Let's try to unpack some of that. Beginning on the disability side, how accessible do you find the chatbot? I find it very accessible. So you log on, it'll ask you to create an account. I uh, I let it into my Google, which is probably a scary thing to do. I used my <laughs> Gmail. And uh, you log on and there's a button that says new chat. And then what you'll do is you'll go into that button and there's a little edit box. Uh, JAWS or voice read, voiceover will read edit box. And you'll type in what you want. So send an email to Kevin Shaw about his next community report on AMI with these topics that he should cover. Um, Kevin's the one that introduced me to this. Thanks, Kevin. Um, and then you'll tab over and it, it'll generate. And what's really cool is there's actually a button that says regenerate. So all the buttons are labeled. You can, you can actually um, hear it in real time as it's generating. There's a button that says stop generating text. If you're like, nope, I, I don't want this anymore. I want to cancel or disable this chat. I have actually gone on a few times and quote unquote broken chat GPT because it's actually had so many users that it wasn't allowing anybody to come on and, and do new, new chat bots. 
But in, in terms of accessibility, it's great. In terms of disability, like I said, if it's just a matter of I have a learning difference, I know these are the ideas I want to put in an email. I just need some help to kind of get that first draft off the ground and kick it off the ground. I could see it being really useful. But again, as I'm sure we'll dive into, I know there's concerns around academic honesty. Okay, so let's start talking about pros versus cons. You've laid a few of them out, but I want you to broaden this out a bit, Elizabeth. Generally speaking, what do you feel the potential of this technology could be? I think there's a couple of things. So I've already mentioned one around, you know, helping with with sort of generating uh, text. But I think it can also be really good in terms of saving time. So if you're just needed to generate a memo or a thank you letter, those are things that you don't really need to do personally. You might put a few personal touches in. So I think it can save time. I think it can help people with writing if we learn to think about writing in a little bit of a different way. I think that it also has a, a really good potential to help with sort of this idea of just organization and flow. So I think there's there's a lot of pros there. I also see pros in terms of creativity. Like maybe you just need something to help you get a few ideas together and then you can be really creative. Um, I, for one, am not a lyricist, but it, it did come up with some great song lyrics. Mm -hmm. So I think there's pros just in terms of how it can help us uh, broaden our thinking, broaden our ideas. For sure. I think that the other thing, though, that we need to think about in terms of all these pros is, okay, what's ours and what's the bot? And at the center, really, the ideas have to be there for the bot to generate something. So the ideas are the users. Now, on the flip side, there are plenty of concerns about artificial mm -hmm. intelligence in this chatbot. What do you believe some of the concerns are? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm a PhD candidate and we had a meeting in our um, TA cohort about this bot um, and how we can use software to check robots against the robots, oh, check to go. see if a bot has written an essay. So we're using robots to check if other robots have done work. It just seems a bit circular to me. But I think certainly intellectual property, you know, the, the one lens that does the images, um, you know, people are concerned that artistry, we which is already an industry that folks often don't get recognized or paid equitably for, that people's work is just going to be out there for everybody to grab and there's going to be no um, intellectual property. Uh, issues around, did this student actually generate this work or was this a bot? Or issues around, a uh, big one I'm hearing from, from faculty is, what's going to happen to writing? How are, how are we going to teach students to write? And I'm thinking, I think we, we just start to think about writing and teaching differently. You know, I remember when the internet first came to our high school, people were really concerned. Like, what if they start Googling the answers? Yeah. Oh, what gosh. if they start, what if they start yeah. getting information at their fingertips? I know, how heaven forbid we're not be? using the Braille encyclopedia in the library. So I think what's going to happen is, is sort of a culture shift or a mind shift around how we think and how we teach. Because I, I actually don't think the chatbot could generate a really good, at this stage, a really good advanced essay. And I don't think it will give you the answers. I think like Google or Wikipedia, it's a start, but I do very vividly remember conversations in our high school around like, what are we gonna do if people just start Googling their answers? And it's like, well, we're gonna teach differently so that we're not just asking for rote memory, we're asking for critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And the bot doesn't do critical thinking. Well, there's lots of critical thinkers on the internet, Elizabeth. Lots and lots of critical thinkers. They spend lots of time in the comment section. Uh, Elizabeth, they, let's... They do. <laughs> uh, if, if you do want to learn more about ChatGPT, you can head over to the website openai.com, openai.com. Elizabeth, let's go from the frontiers of new technology to maybe something a little bit more old school, a candlelight concert series in Toronto. What drew you to this series? So I love music, I love concerts, and I thought this was really interesting because this is taking some really classic works like the Amy Winehouse, they're doing, um, I think they're doing a Bach to the Beatles. That looks really cool. I, I don't know how they're going to fit all that in because <laughs> there's a lot in there. They're doing... Ah, it's just um, like 200 years of music, no biggie. Just 200 years and it's only an hour. So who knows? Uh, they're doing a Romeo and Juliet for Valentine's Day. Uh, it really com combines my love of theater and music and doing something that's a little bit unique and different. So they're actually doing these concerts in various locations around the city. This is put on by Fever. And so if you go to BlogTO, you'll see that there are a number of different locations, the Paradise Theatre, the Metropolitan Community Church. And so depending on where the concert is, there's different locations. The tickets are $30 and the concerts are an hour. 
Um, doors open 45 minutes before. So if it's a colder night, bring your, bring your warm, uh, your warm clothes to line up. Uh, it's a really nice way. There's live musicians that are performing these concerts. And I think the other thing that struck me is during COVID, we know that musicianship was really changed and, and a lot of musicians were shut out of work. So this is a way for new and upcoming folks to get some exposure and to have some fun with music feverup.com and then there's a bunch of dashes and slashes that I'm not going to read all the way through but feverup.com and uh, you'll find the full link on our blog after the show ami.ca slash now ami.ca slash now Elizabeth of some of these uh, featured shows whether it be the Romeo and Juliet ABBA Beyonce the Nutcracker Romeo and Juliet anything jump off the page to you I do. I do love ABBA. I've seen Mamma Mia probably four times. So I think I, if it, uh, if it's available, I'd like to go to the ABBA, but I, I'm kind of curious how they're going to do Romeo and Juliet. Like if it's a music concert, I'm wondering if they're going to do the music from the stage play, or if they're going to have some acting in there, that could be fun. Um, but I'm also very intrigued by Bach to the Beatles. Um, I like both, both of those uh, musicians and very, very different. So squishing that into an hour, like I said, is going to be interesting. Yeah. So I'll have to report back next time yeah i don't know why we'd go beyond bach because if it ain't baroque don't fix it elizabeth thank you for this <laughs> have a great bad. day that's bad, worst. maybe you should use the bot to generate some jokes oh Dave. snap thanks elizabeth <laughs> i appreciate it elizabeth no have a problem. great you, you just you just popped at the control room by the way they're all going bonkers down the hall um <laughs> elizabeth thanks for this no problem dave that's botting. <laughs> That's Elizabeth Moeller, community reporter in Toronto, Ontario. Remember, ami.ca slash now is the address. Let's wrap up the hour with a couple of news stories. With the war in Ukraine nearing the 11-month mark, Britain is supplying more heavy weaponry. Tom Rivers has the details. Britain's pledge, 14 Challenger 2 tanks. Ukrainian President Zelensky hopes others will now follow suit. Today is a good example from Great Britain. A new defense aid package has been announced, just what is needed. Tanks, other armored vehicles, artillery, what we discussed with the Prime Minister. British Defense Secretary plans to travel to Estonia and Germany this week to work with NATO allies. And the Foreign Secretary is scheduled to visit the U.S. and Canada to discuss closer coordination. Tom Rivers, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. Meanwhile, Turkey's foreign minister will visit the United States today to discuss some pressing NATO issues. Charles de Ledesma looks ahead. Mevlut Shavosholu heads for a meeting with the U.S. counterpart Antony Blinken on a rare visit by a top Turkish official. President Joe Biden's administration has kept its distance from Turkey because of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's increasingly authoritarian direction and policies curbing rights and freedoms. Expectations that outstanding issues can be resolved, though, are low. The NATO allies frequently find themselves at odds over a number of issues, with the biggest disputes centering on Turkey's purchase of Russian-made missiles and American support for Kurdish militants in Syria. I'm Charles de Ledesma. Coming up after the break, it's the regional news update, and Brock Richardson will stop by for a sports chat. We'll talk about the Dallas Cowboys dismantling the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last night, but there are some concerns with that Dallas kicking game. Kick it with us on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.